Hi, I'm Daniel Wordsworth. For more than 30 years, I've experienced war zones, natural disasters, refugee camps, and sprawling slums. Now I'm going to show you a better and more optimistic world. This podcast is Finding Good. At the start of Finding Good Season 2, Daniel, welcome back. You look you look rested. Thanks. You look tanned. Really? I'm sure you've been somewhere amazing. <laughs> we'll talk about that in a second. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Thank you for subscribing to the show on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your good podcasts. It's really important to us that you also rate the show. Uh, if you enjoy it, please uh, leave a rating, especially on Apple, and a, a little um, a little note to tell everyone why you enjoy it. That helps people discover it and we can share the goodness. Mm. Uh, now, Daniel, you've been away. Yeah. Anywhere interesting? Yeah, well, I was um, – I went through Latin America and then I ended up in on the Amazon, actually wow. the Amazon River. Uh, well, Vision has a boat mm. on the Amazon that's a hospital boat and it has doctors, nurses, dentists actually and the boat goes up the Amazon and it goes into those tribal areas and it provides medical care and so I spent some time on that boat. It's big. How big is I mean, it's a stupid question, but how big is the Amazon where you were, like from one side to the other? Can you see the other side? Well, where I was, you could see the other side, but there's sort of the Amazon River and then there's the Amazon area. Uh, and the river is incredibly wide at certain points. You can't see the other side. Uh, I could see the other side, but um, it's a long way. It's a giant river, enormous. Right. This, so you're the only man I know who, you know, for a couple of weeks off goes, I'm going to go on a hospital boat up the Amazon. That's yeah. that's recreation. Right. Well, <laughs> I, it's what I love to do, yeah. <laughs> Straight to the Amazon or did you go anywhere else? Well, actually, I went to Latin America and... Um, that's a really, for me, Latin America, which is, you know, down from Mexico down through, you know, El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala, and then into Colombia. Because, you know, the Amazon actually goes into Colombia, right? right? There's a part part of that I was on in the Amazon. I was in one of the indigenous areas, which is right where Colombia, Peru, and Brazil meet. It's, it's called like the tri-border region. So I got to go there and um, spend some time with a the community there. But this whole region is a really important one for me. It's kind of part of what inspired me to go from working with poor people in Australia to working with poor people overseas. Oh, really? Yep. So yeah. you've, you've been there a few times. Yeah. So the first time I went there was back in the 90s, actually. If you remember back, if you go back to the first episode, I was telling this story that we had this house, right? And we, you know, we had this house, we put these bunks up, and then we send out this letter everywhere saying, you know, to all the youth halfway houses, crisis at prisons, you know, send, you know, everybody to us. Send us your hungry, right? you, that sort of yeah. thing. Yeah, we did that. And then we had three houses, then we go. So right at that time, when we were in the height of this sort of work, it was most, it was most, it was all actually with people that were on the street, if you like in Sydney. Mm -hmm. And, and one night um, I went out to a church and I heard this Baptist minister talking from El Salvador. Now, this is, um, this is early 90s in Australia, in Sydney. Yeah. I didn't really know anything about El Salvador. And so I'm listening to this um, Baptist minister and he's telling this story about what's happening and what's happening in that country for 15 years. And it was, it, it was so shocking to me. Mm because he's talking about there was a, a civil war that happened in El Salvador and it was an incredibly brutal one. And it very kind of became, it's, it's this, it sort of has these iconic images of sort of death squads and guys in these sort of mirrored sunglasses. Yeah, that, and that was perpetuated by that film, um, Salvador with James Woods, that right, was, yeah. was big so in the early 90s. That, right? that, that film, right? That, yep. He did that one and there was another one about Oscar Romero, actually, okay. who was a bishop that got assassinated in El Salvador. And so this Baptist minister was a, was a justice sort of social justice guy 
from El Salvador that was there in the middle of all of that, knew Oscar Romero, and he himself got kidnapped and taken hostage, and he's telling these stories. And one of the things that that sort of shook me to my core was he would talk about the fact that these um, death squads would take people and they would take them to the dump. So instead of, you know, killing them in their home or in the jails or whatever, mm. just to make it easy, they would take them to these big dumps, city dumps, garbage tips. Yep. Yep. And they would just stand the person on the garbage tip and then they would just shoot them. And then person, and they would leave them there. Oh, that's horrendous. And it was, it, you know, I'm a young guy, I'm in my early 20s, but this was a, like a shot. I thought, how... Why would you do that to a person, mm. right? Like put them on the dump and then kill them and shoot them. And it just seemed such sacrilege to me, yeah? And so then we, I came back to the group, right? All, all of us doing it. We, we're like, we're back, like, to, back to your halfway yeah, house. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're going to El Salvador, <laughs> right? We're going to Latin America, <laughs> right? We're getting into this. And so then everybody was like, where's El Salvador, right? So we're like, I'm, so, you know, over there. And uh, we're going there. Who, who should we... And, and then I said, well, there's this Baptist guy. I forgot to get his name, right? <laughs> but I guess this Baptist guy in El Salvador. And, and then, we, so then we start scouring, uh, trying to find contacts. Now, at that time... No internet. There's no internet, right? There's no email. So we thought, how do we find people over there? And, and what, what we had, I found this book. Mm-hmm. And this book is called Bruchko. And it's about this young American guy. And he was uh, you know, born in America when he was 18. He flies down to Colombia. Now, I know Colombia is not El Salvador. But... It's all Latin. Like, I wasn't – it's all there. Sure. Yep. And so I heard about this, uh, this guy called Bruchko, and he's, he, he's just the most remarkable person. He disappeared into this indigenous community in the jungle, and, and part of what he did, right, was he's in this community, and he, he ended up dedicating his whole life there. So this is in the 50s, 60s when he went over yeah. there, 60s when he went over there. And, uh, for example, they didn't have a written language, so he learned the language. Um, he, pr- he actually wrote and prepared a script. He then took the elders aside and taught the elders the script, and then they taught the community, and no one ever knew it was him that did it. And uh, when he, he was doing medical care, he would take the traditional healers and, and he would just get them to add things like quinine into their traditional practices. And so, again, for the, from the community's point of view, it, it didn't look like he was doing much. But he was empowering all these other sort of people within the community yes. to be transformative. And I just love this idea. And so we thought, well, he, we, we'll go and see him. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, um, so yeah. you, how do you get a number? Yeah. So <laughs> we, we were like, how do we get a number? And then in the book, as a book publisher. So we wrote to the book publisher. Can you tell us, uh, Bruschko, he, he, uh, uh, his name is Bruce Olson. Can you tell us Bruce Olson's um, telephone number? We want to give him a call. So we write the letter. Send it. Yeah. To New York. <laughs> wait then for we wait. wait four weeks. We wait, right? <laughs> it, it comes back, like, you know, carry a pigeon. We get the letter. The letter says, um, essentially, have you gone mad, right? They get, they're like, you know, I might not realize this, but Bruce Olsen was just kidnapped. He was taken by these militias. He's got death threats on him. You can't, um, we're not going to give you his address or his telephone number. <laughs> um, he's on the run, actually, yeah. inside Colombia. Uh, but they said, if you want to write to him, here's an address. Right. And the address was all in Spanish. <sighs> and uh, it was something like uh, a, a Partido a Central Coriolis 2347 uh, Bucaramanga, Colombia. Right. Now, again, we're going, in this time in Sydney, I didn't know anyone that spoke Spanish. 
We didn't speak any Spanish. <laughs> and this whole address is written in Spanish. And so we looked at it and we thought, we thought this means central apartment building, Bucaramanga, 2347, floor 23, yes. apartment 47. And then we thought, well, we don't want to write to him. How long will that take? Because he's going to knock on his door. We're just going to knock on his door. <laughs> And so myself, but Qantas weren't flying to Colombia at yeah, that point. It, it, we had, we did. It, it was like that whole everything about this was like that movie, Romancing the Stone. Right. So it, it, we had to go to the U.S. Then we had to take this like this sort of flight that went to every to Latin Cartagena American, and you know, all that, sort of, all, all that kind of stuff. Right. <laughs> so we end up um, myself and a guy called Brad. We end up after this long journey in this place called Barranquilla, right, which is right on the coast. Now we, we didn't realize. Like now on HBO, there's this show called Narcos, right? So yeah. everybody knows about Pablo Escobar. Yes. We didn't know about Pablo Escobar. And we arrived there in um, around New Year's Eve of January 1994. Pablo Escobar had been killed like three weeks earlier. Mm -hmm. So we arrive in Colombia at the height of the Narcos danger craziness. Yeah. Yep. Everyone and, trying to claim the top spot. And, and we, the two of us, get off the aeroplane in Barranquilla and everybody's like, what? We don't even speak Spanish. People are like, what, what are you doing here? <laughs> and they kept saying, muy peligroso, muy peligroso the whole time. Every time we would bring up anything, we want to go to a bus station, we want to take a bus to Booker, everyone's muy peligroso. What does it mean? Well, it turns out it means very dangerous. Right. Right? But at the time, we're like, we think it's like a direction. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and, and so we get on this bus. And again, it's just, it is So just you're getting like, on buses asking to go to very dangerous. Yeah, no, it's, you know, they go, uh, we go, we want to go to this place. Oh, uh, that's muy peligroso. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> and so we end up with this bus, we go all this night, and we're going to this place called Bucaramanga. Am I going into too much detail? I said to you this episode could go out of control. That's a okay. Bit. That's okay. okay. I'm so, just picturing two insane Australians getting off the plane and, and just asking to be taken. Point me to danger. Point, point, <laughs> point is, uh, so, uh, and Bucaramanga is right up on the mountains. So the mountains where Colombia and Venezuela meet, mm -hmm. that's where Bucaramanga is like the mountain town in that area. And the, this tribal area that, that Bruchko works in is right in that mountainous area. And so we go up there, we take the thing. And we had an old lonely, we'd found this old lonely planet, right, in a secondhand bookstore yeah. in Sydney, and it was like really out of date. But it had in there a hotel in Bucaramanga called the Hotel Elena. So we had this Hotel Elena address. Because so people don't understand, right, that you, in order to get a hotel, that's all you had. You had lonely planets or, or photos or the, yeah. the, the travel books and yeah, they yeah, listed hotels. And, yeah, you had, to, you had to pick one of those hotels yeah. so you had somewhere to stay on your first night. Yeah. You couldn't just get onto the internet. There was no Airbnb. There's no way you could yeah. just check in. You booking.com. Well. All you had, we had this old, beaten, lonely planet, out of date, this address of Hotel Elena. Because Bucaramanga is not like, even now, if you go visit Colombia, you don't go to Bucaramanga. Yeah. So we didn't There's go no to W Hotel. So we, yeah, we go to we go to Hotel Elena and we get up in the morning and we come down and all we have right is the address. Mm -hmm. So we say to the recep we go to the receptionist. Uh, he doesn't speak any English. We don't speak any Spanish. So we hold the address. The good news is the address is in Spanish. So we hold the address up to him like this, and uh, the receptionist points out the door down the street. So we go down the street and then we get to the next corner. And we hold up the address to to somebody, and then we go. We we walk our way through Bucaramanga, every corner, holding up this address. People pointing. We thought we we're going to an apartment building, mm -hmm. and then suddenly we end up in the middle of Bucaramanga, and it's a post office. And then it dawns on us: this is not an apartment building. This is a post office box number. And then it suddenly <laughs> seemed obvious: he's kidnapped. They're not going to tell. They're not going to give us his home 
This is a post office box. You hadn't considered that prior? We hadn't even thought about no. this. And so we went, then we thought to ourselves, well, how many post office boxes could there be? <laughs> so then we go to the post office and there's a door going down, post office, uh, a courier else, whatever. I think we get, we, how many could there be? We go down. Turns out no such thing as post post in Bukaramanga. The only way you get letters is to have a post office box. Right. So the whole town's got a post office box. <laughs> so we go down there. It's like um, this enormous cavernous room <laughs> full of thousands. We didn't even think for a second, two, three, four, seven. That means at a minimum there's 2,347. Yeah. We, uh, there's thousands. And then so we go to, we find his post office. We, we have a notepad and then we write, Hi, Bruce. It's Brad and Daniel. We're staying at the Hotel Elena. We're here for a week. We really want to meet you. Call us up. And we slot that in his post office box. Right. And then we're walking out and we're on the steps going out. And then I, th I thought to myself, what if he doesn't come and get that thing? And we're just like, like this is not, it's not guaranteed to work, yeah. right? So I turn around on the steps. So this is, my, this is what will be guaranteed to I turn around on the steps and I shout out to this whole big room. It's all sort of dim and dark, mm -hmm. thousands of people milling around. I shout out in English, perfect English. Does anybody here know Bruce Olsen? You are not a good travel companion. <laughs> I'm just saying, this guy's, he's marked, right? Yeah. Like, they are trying to catch Get the him. man yeah, yeah. and take him down. And if I was traveling with you, I'd be like, dude, can you shut up? Don't mention his <laughs> yeah, name. Yeah, can you not, <laughs> can you ask for anyone else? Maybe whisper it to someone. Yeah, no. Does anyone here know Bruce Olsen? And I'm telling you, two meters away, like where that, two meters away, this guy turns around and perfect English says, I know Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> and we were like, great, uh, where does he live? And then the guy's like, well, you know, he's on the run. Like yeah. he, he changes <laughs> his houses every week. And uh, so he said, I don't know where he is right now, but I know somebody who I think would know. And then he gives us that address. Now, what then happened over the next few days? Because we read this book. In this book are all these amazing characters. Yep. And uh, what, because we were trying to track down Bruce Olsen, each person would tell us to go to the next person. Mm -hmm. And we ended up meeting all the characters in the book because they're all like his friends. So we would, they go, go and see these two uh, Bible translators. So we went and saw them. They were classic, by the way. They were the <laughs> ones, they spent four years in a village and they worked, in the end of four years, half of their vocabulary was all one phrase and they couldn't work it out. And then they discovered after four years, it was a pointed finger. Because they would say things like, what's this? I'm pointing my finger at the microphone. They would point at a glass. What's this? And the people would say, a pointed finger. And it took them years to realize that half of their vocabulary was the same phrase, a pointed finger. So we met them. We met all these characters. But finally we meet this person who says, um, I know where Bruce is right now. Okay, where's Bruce now? And they said, he's in this very secure building. I'm not going to do anything but give you the address and you see if you can get in so we show up right at the door and there's a big there's all these bars and there's a security guard and the security guard speaks a bit of english and he's on a telephone right so we go we're here to see bruce olsen the security guy rings up and he's talking to bruce olsen on the telephone and uh he says uh, mr bruce says who are you then we say staniel and brad <laughs> he goes <laughs> like he has any concept he, of who he you goes, are Who's Daniel and Brad? <laughs> We're like, oh, it's a long story. We can explain it to him if he lets us. And then the security guy says, Mr. Bruce says, Muy Peligroso, this is a very dangerous city. Colombia is very dangerous. You don't know what you're doing. You shouldn't be here. Go away. Like, flee, the, leave the country. Yep. Yeah. But does that mean he won't see us? Yeah, he will not see you. Yep. And then the phone gets hung up. So the Brad and I are standing there. And then we think, well, 
It's not entirely a bust. Because what happened is while we were doing these walks, we heard about this former assassin that was working in the most dangerous prison in the world yeah. called the Bella Vista Prison in Medellin. Medellin's where Pablo Escobar did yes. his thing. There's a prison there where they all got put. Mm-hmm. And we had heard about this ex, they're called Sicari, Sicario? Sicario? Yes, yeah, Sicario. And he was working in this prison. And in, in that prison, there was on, on average one to two homicides a day. And we heard, while we were going on this three days trying to find Bruce, we heard about this Sicario. And then we thought, we'll go and see him. Of course and, you did. So we, we left and we went to Medellin and we spent the next few days in that prison in... Um, Hang on, you spent the next few days in a prison? In the prison, in uh, Bella Vista Prison in Medellin. How did he get into a prison? We went in with this Sakara. These are much more casual operations than yeah, you think. You think? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like in prisons in, in these areas, at, particularly at that time, it's not like everyone's in cells. They're like big, big open areas, everybody's in bunk beds and everyone lives everywhere. So when you go in there, there's like... Animals and ki- there's women in there. There's like right. a whole life thing in there, and we, we were just spending a few days in there. You know, it wasn't it wasn't real wise, and we <laughs> did think. <laughs> oh, I'm glad you realised that now. <laughs> and we did think at the time. Uh, I don't think we should. Uh, this is probably not. Uh, we're not really sustainable. Yeah, it's, we're not really experienced enough for this. Yeah. But we went there from there to El Salvador and we met with that um, Baptist minister, which is a similar way because I didn't know his name. We just got off the airplane. There's a Baptist minister and we ended up tracking him down. It was. It, so did you get to meet Bruce? So, okay. It took me 20 years. So 20 years later, I'm the CEO of the organization that I was leading before World Vision. So mm-hmm. it's an organization called The Light. Yep. Mm-hmm. And it's based in Minneapolis. And yes. I became a CEO there. A lot of the stories that I'm telling on the podcast are from my time when I'm with this the This is the one associated with the Eastern Congo Initiative. Yeah, that's the one with that and it's worked, focused on refugees around the world. Yeah. And uh, when I became the CEO there, I was getting interviewed uh, by one of the local newspapers and I had a photographer there and they, were, and they asked me, who are your inspirations in life, right? Who are your, you know, who, who's, and I said, well, there are three that you will know and one that you will not know. The three that you will know, uh, Mother Teresa, Francis of Assisi and Bishop Oscar Romero. I try to be like them. And, but the fourth one is Bruce Olson, right? And it was like, who's Bruce Olson? I said, he's just um, this amazing guy. But, you know, long story, as you we were just evidenced. Yep. And uh, the interview finishes and the photographer comes up and says, um, I know who Bruce Olson is. I said, oh, really? He says, yeah, he's from St. Paul, Minneapolis. This is Twin Cities. He's from here. Right. I said, he's from here. And then I, I thought, well, that's remarkable. <laughs> awesome. Yep. Three months later, I get a telephone call one day in my, my office. Hello. Yeah, it's the photographer from the Pioneer Press. Oh, yeah, hi. Yeah. He goes, guess who's in town for one night only? Bruce Olson. So I go to this church, and it's like this little back room, and there's like 30 people. I remember there was one lady there knitting, right? <laughs> there's like 30 people in this room, one knitting. And there is Bruce Olson. He's like in his 80s. Little now. old man. He's 80s. Yeah. And, I, and he told the story about how he disappeared in the community and did all of these things. And I'm looking around the room and everyone's just like, I'm thinking, do you know who, do we know who this is? And, uh, and then when it finished, I got in the line to meet him and uh, I shook his hand and said, I just want to say, this has been a long journey, but I just want to say thank you. And he said, uh, you know, you're welcome. And then I left. You didn't, you didn't tell him you were of... of- <laughs> The no. two guys that turned up outside his house? No. <laughs> oh, man. I wonder if he'd remembered. Yeah, I don't know. I didn't ask him. But what about Colombia? So you you said you've got yeah. a rich history with Colombia. You've yeah. been back. So I, we did this, and this is like 1990, um, J- 
January 1994, and then we went to El Salvador. And then I got into the kind of work that I'm doing now, right, where I'm working for an organization and it's a little bit less, um, you know, shoot from the hip kind of thing. (laughs) So (laughs) You can't just turn up in the middle of a a hillside, a mountainside town and ask to speak to a guy who's on the run. Well, in theory, it turns out you can, right, right? Um, which is a little bit about what the – like. so what happened – so I wanted to keep going back to Colombia. Colombia is one of the most beautiful countries on earth. It's 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 so gorgeous. It's like Switzerland. It's so green and vibrant and the people are so uh, amazing. And um, you know, that's where salsa dancing's from. So yeah. I got to do salsa dancing on the famous street in Cali, where it's like that's the street, right? In uh, during the Cali cartel uh, period, so we, we would go back there a lot. I, I went back there in the early two thousands again, right at the sort of height of the Cali cartel. And the, there's a thing called FARC, F A R C, which is the that's the, they're the bad guys, right? Mm-hmm. The militia out in the thing, and there's a civil war going on in Colombia. And I don't. And we were working in all these communities in these areas, the uh, fuck held areas, and other areas, trying to do work with children. Yes. Yeah? So healthcare, education, different things like this. And so I was doing a trip uh, to go there and uh, visit there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I wanted to go out to some of these communities. I mean, one of the places we went to. Um, well, we were in the city of Cali, and the next day we were driving into this location in the mountains. And uh, when I got there, the team said, it's a hiccup. Now, this is going to sound cavalier. Everything's tightened since then. This is going to sound cavalier. <laughs> this is, <laughs> oh, good. This, I can't this, wait. This, this, so we wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do this now. And if anyone from World Vision is listening to this, you can't do this. Right. Yep. So we got there and <laughs> let's, um, make let's get this clear. clear. Yeah. So we got there and, the, and, the, and the, we had this meet and greet before we go into this. It's like an indigenous community, but it's right in the uh, area. And I wanted to go there because you, to me, you can't ask people to work somewhere you're not willing to go, yes. right? It's a simple equation. And, and how do you know about a thing if you don't go there and see it yourself? Yeah. Right? You just have to go. So I thought I have to go. And it's also Colombia, which is beautiful. But I thought um, then the team meets and they go, uh, this has been a hiccup. What's the hiccup? Three days ago, two German aid workers got kidnapped on the same road that we're going into this community on. Hmm. Now, at that time, kidnapping was happening a lot. But in Colombia, when you got kidnapped, they didn't kill you. They just take you hostage for like a year and then they ransom you. Yeah. A year? For about a year, yeah. And, And so then I thought, they said, these two German guys have been kidnapped on the same road. And in the meet and greet was the indigenous, like the elder, the chief, if you like, yes. of the community we're going to. He'd come out to take us in the next day, next morning. And I said, well, is it a, is this a, like a real wise idea? And, and I was there with a person called Dr. Leslie Snyder. She's a professor at Tulane University who was a psychiatrist. And she was helping me with mental health and trauma work in conflict areas. Right. And she was there. They, with this, this people kidnapped, and then the village. I said, "Is it a really a good idea to drive on that same road? Like <laughs> only a couple of days later, won't they get us?" And the village elder, very you know, rises up in his chair, and he says, "You have nothing to fear." <laughs> and so I looked at him. I go, "I, I have nothing to fear." <laughs> he says, "No, you have nothing to fear." I go, "Why do I have?" This like sounds like perfect fear environment, <laughs> and he was like. Um, he, he holds up this stick. Now, it's a stick. It looks a lot like an upside-down cricket stump because right. it's like about the same and it's got a pointed end like that and, the, and it's varnished brown. And on the pointed end, it's got like a tin okay. metal bit. He holds this up to me 
And I look at the thing and I go, okay, but like, what's that? He goes, this stick is the emblem of my authority in the area. And while I am there and with this stick, no one will harm us. And you're thinking it's a cricket stump with a tin well, on it. Yeah, I looked at it and I thought, I look at Leslie nervously. She's smiling, right? Like Leslie's like smiling. <laughs> and I'm thinking, uh, okay, okay, all right, let's go. Leslie, oh, I go, do you really? Leslie, yeah, we should go. So the next day we go. It's hours and hours. We drive in and we're in the community for some hours. And then we're driving back out. And at a certain point, the village elder's with us still. He starts laughing hilariously. He is laughing, hilariously laughing. <laughs> he's like, oh, 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 he's like crying laughter. And I said, I waited till he finished. And then I said, what, what's going on? He goes, I am so, I'm so relieved. I'm so relieved. And he's taking these deep breaths. I said, what are you relieved about? He goes, we just spent hours in the jaws of a wolf. <laughs> and the wolf was so close, I could feel its hot breath on my neck. And we got out just before the wolf closed its jaws on us. And then he starts laughing again with uh, relief. And I sat there. I said, we were in the jaws of the wolf. <laughs> and you could feel its hot breath. And he goes, yes, yes, but we got out before it closed on us. And then I said, but, but I thought you had the stick. <laughs> and he says, the stick, the stick, they have guns. What chance do we stand? And then I was just, that's exactly what I was thinking last night. <laughs> So that's the Columbia one. So anyway, this trip was I was going what, back. But what preparation do you take? Hang on. So that you were, you're walking into a position where you could realistically, apart from the stick, be kidnapped. What yeah. preparation do you? Okay. How do you prepare uh, yeah, yourself yeah. to potentially be kidnapped? That's a very good question, and I did prepare myself. Hmm. Now it's different. I will again. I stress it's very different now. Nowadays we have a thing called heat which is called hostile environment awareness training, and right. we do all these trainings, right, where you're getting mock shot at and mock kidnapped, yeah. and you get taken hostage and you so interrogated. So like the TV show SAS. Is that what they do on that? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so now we have that, right? I just did it with World Vision Does It for all our teams that go right. into these locations. So we get trained to do this. But at that time I had – well, no, I had done one. Yeah, I had done one. But how did I prepare myself? So that morning I woke up and I thought, I'm going to be kidnapped. Like I, I was sure it was going to happen. Yeah. And I, so I put on two items of every piece of clothing. So I put on – Two, you know, singlet, two, un I put on two jeans, two shirts, two jackets. Two pairs of undies. I did, yeah. <laughs> I put in two of everything. Yeah. And the reason I thought if I'm, when I'm kidnapped, each day I'll wear one set and then I'll wash one set. And in the jungle <laughs> it'll hopefully get dry. So right? you, you were thinking not about survival, you were just thinking about having clean clothes to wear. Yeah, actually, which, which remains very important to me. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, and then I thought, and then I was sitting there and looking in the mirror. Well, on the bright side, you know, you'll be your Spanish will be really good. <laughs> like I was talking to myself in the mirror. You've got two clothing. You can change one every day. Your Spanish will be good at the end of the year, and you'll be a real expert on Colombia. <laughs> And just think about the speaking tour afterwards. Yeah. This is, this, this, you can make a living on the talking circuit. There's some sort of up, upside to this, and I, but I wasn't. We weren't. And, and I, I'm not got, always going to be careful. I'm not making light of any of those things. Of course. It's horrible to have that happen and all that stuff. Um, but um, no, I did put on. That's how I prepared. Right. 
So you've not been kidnapped ever, which is I'm assuming you've not been kidnapped ever. Uh, no, I've been carjacked by the Taliban. But that we'll we use that for another. That would oh, be, hang um, on, let me just write down carjacking <laughs> by the Taliban. So Colombia, this trip a lot different. You, were, <laughs> we started this by I uh, asked how your holiday was. Oh yeah, okay. I'm really glad I asked that question. Yeah, so it's not really a holiday. We went back to um, Latin America. So World Vision in Australia, we haven't been spotting a lot of work in Latin America, and I think it'll be good for us to look at doing that again. Yeah, yeah. And so I wanted to go back. We, World Vision has this amazing team in Latin America, Joao, who's leading it all, and there's a whole bunch of – there's just amazing people over there. And Latin America is a magical place when it comes to the kind of work we do. It's got all this sort of rich history of Paulo Freire, liberation theology, this sort of deep you know, poverty work. So we wanted to go back there. So I went back over and I spent time in Honduras and Guatemala and with, meeting with teams from El Salvador, and then I went into this Amazon area. Actually um, – in some ways it had some sort of full circle elements to this. I was in one of the places that I visited when I was in Honduras was um, a city called San Pedro Sula. It's one of the main cities of uh, Honduras. It has a massive garbage dump mm -hmm. on the outskirts of the city, uh, like the, the same sort of vein as the garbage dump that I was talking about earlier with uh, San Salvador and El Salvador. Yeah. We were helping educate kids that were working on the dump. What do you, what do they do on the dump? What, so what, work is what happens is if you imagine this dump, it's this enormous expanse and it's just mountains of rubbish and garbage. And, it, you know, imagine like looking out across some sort of hilled to the horizon. Like hectares? Hectares and hectares of these mountains of trash and all these crows and birds flying over it and sort of trucks moving in and out and it's really hot, incredibly hot and humid. Be its own it's really ecosystem, I'd imagine. Yeah. So what happens is people live there and, and part of what they do is they sort the garbage. So the trucks dump the garbage out and then everybody dives in and you're sorting glass uh, textiles, you're sorting out anything of value, they divide up and then you take this stuff out like aluminium or, or tin or metal or anything else. You take that, gather it, and then you sell it. Mm -hmm. And so people, you know, work there and they work on the dump for hours and they do shifts. So there's a 12-hour shift for the day and there's a 12-hour shift for night. And uh, kids and families live on the dump in tents, like not tents, but lean to's. lean to's kind of things. And they work there. And so what we're working with an organization in Honduras that's trying to get the kids off the dump and teach them, like get them into school. So we were visiting. We can't go to the – I couldn't go to the actual dump on that trip. It's They won't let people like me uh, go in. But I got to meet the um, family. So one of the people that they took me to meet was um, this grandma. She's amazing. She's got her kids. The kids uh, were working on the dump. Uh, the boy does now. The girl doesn't anymore. Mm -hmm. She goes to the school. How old is she? Uh, the girl's 15. And the boy is, I think, about 12. Because he, I, didn't, I didn't get to meet him. He was sleeping because he does the night shift. Yes. So when you visit her house, he's on the bed. He's asleep. I could meet the grandma and the daughter, uh, granddaughter. Uh, but she's a remarkable character and she lives in the slum. It's on the, on the edge of the dump. There's a slum. And we're talking to photos. And as we were, that, the, the little girl, and we don't say their name, right? So she, um, she'd been with us actually at the school and she'd come back to visit. You know, when we were going back to see her grandma, she came back with us. Yeah. And, but she hadn't been introduced to me. And so when I was, I took a photo and then I took a photo. I said, oh, is this your grandma? Yeah. So I took a photo of both of them. And I was walking out. Now, there's this, you know, when we talk about a person being bright, right? Mm -hmm. This child's really bright. It turns out that's like a literal thing because there's something about this kid. Yep. Yeah? And she was just bright. 
as I was walking away from the house, I was with the person that was taking us there from the community, and I said, um, who's the girl? Like, who's the kid? Tell me about her. And they said, well, we've just found her on the dump. And uh, what she'd been, lived her whole life on the dump, her parents had gone. Her grandmother was in the outside, so she lived by herself with her brother on the rubbish tip through her one, two, three, four, five, six wow. years, years old. Yeah. Every day she worked for 12 hours picking up glass, metal, sorting it through her childhood. But they said when we met her, what we discovered was she used to also look for books in the rubbish. And whenever she would find a book, she would hide it away and she would take it back when the shift finished into her little um, lean-to and she'd made this little set of shelves <laughs> and she had this little book library and she taught herself to write and read from the books that she found from the rubbish. Wow. And when they discovered this little girl, they were like, well, do you want to go to school? She, <laughs> well, yeah. This is a dream come true, yes. right? And so, yes, I do. And so the little girl came out and now she's 15. She's been going to school for a couple of years. So what's her future? She wants to be, she said she wants to be a doctor right now. And I know that sounds classic, but but it's also, well, when you consider it's going to happen, she, by the way. Where, you, where she's come from, absolutely. Where she's come from. And Why you, wouldn't she want to treat people? So you, you know from looking at her that that's where she's going to be. Uh, that's where she'll end up. She is full of, there's something special about her. And, I, and I'm not just make. I think there's something special, obviously, about everybody. But I think that there's something that happens in a journey like that that does something to her, yeah? And so I think she'll be a doctor or she'll be uh, the president of Honduras or something like that. What's good about this is that we can actually put her into school and make sure she does, make sure she goes to university. She's going to be remarkable. I'll put a picture of her and her grandma up on the Instagram because okay. I've got a picture of them both together. But is it, this is also very... I know it seems classic, but it's true. This person was thrown onto a dump. And yet when you meet her, she is like a bright, sacred thing. She's not just survived, she's thrived. Yeah. And she never deserved what she had. She made her way through it and we can fix that, but she never deserved that. And I think this part of this theme for me are things like the underground forest, right, where you, have a, you look at a desert, you look at a dump, yeah. and you just see vultures and crows and dust and rubbish. But if you look closer, you see people bent over, sorting it out. And then if you look closer, one of them seven. Mm -hmm. And then you think, I wonder what they could, what could happen if I could spend time with that seven-year-old. And this girl's an example of that. That's phenomenal. Mm. That was amazing. What an amazing discovery. Yeah. So it is remarkable. And then we went down and we did the hospital book. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which sounds like a story for another day. So what we've learned from this is if you ever say, hey, let's go on a holiday, don't go with you because you're a liability. <laughs> Wear two pairs of underpants if you're going through Columbia <laughs> and, 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 and be amazed by what you can find on the rubbish dumps for Latin America. Keep your eye out. Fantastic. Daniel, thank you. Uh, DanielWordsworth.com is the website address if you'd like to go and uh, know more about Daniel or even ask a question. We love questions and we'll do an episode. We've got lots of questions coming in, an episode where we quiz you a little more. Also, please subscribe to the show on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to rate the show as well and follow Daniel on all the socials. Daniel Wordsworth, this is Finding Good and there will be another episode. We will return. Thank you. 